1: Hello everybody and welcome to the Manchester is Red podcast brought to you by the Manchester Evening News. My name is Dan Murphy and joining me today on this inexplicably cold May day is Mr Samuel Lucas. Samuel, how's it going?
2: Very well, thank you Dan. Good to see you as always. Good to have you back.
1: I'm back, I'm back baby and we'll see how long that lasts before I make another mistake because I think I was on a bit of a bad roll last time but hopefully I'm refreshed back for a new season and also with me today is Mr Rich Fay. Rich, how's it going?
0: Yeah, I'm hoping I don't have any errors either. Like you said, you you Yeah, it's exciting, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, it does feel like there's a a new sort of sense of life, a clean slate for United this week, doesn't mm-hmm. it? It feels like you know that season is behind us now, and we can start looking forward to the future and look forward to this podcast as well.
1: Absolutely not. You you know what? You're absolutely bang on there. It's exactly what I was going to start with. It's like you know, it's only what five days removed from United suffering yet another defeat, watching the neighbours um, win another Premier League title in scenes that. United can only remember faintly from nearly ten years ago now, but even so, you know, just after the worst ever Premier League campaign on a measly fifty-eight points. But even so, Samuel, it has been quite a optimistic week. I think fans know that the season is out of the way, the the dreary death march is finally finished, and Eric Ten Hag is definitely in through the door. Um, it seems like hopes have been risen somewhat ahead of the summer, ahead of the next season, and Ten Hag's. The, the main culprit in uh, in that happening.
2: Indeed, it, it had become quite stagnant in the last months of the season. Rangnick always referred to the the, the defeat to Atletico Madrid in, in mid-March. And it, it was like a slow death march to the Europa League or the Europa Conference League in those final months with a couple of spectacular defeats thrown into it. And the, the fact that the club, I, I knew that the... The Ten Hag press conference was going to be post season, but uh, we, we got word of it. I think on Thursday last week that it was going to be on the Monday, so they they could hardly wait to draw a line under this season. I think we still say this season, don't we? I, I suppose when you get into June, you can say last season, but it, um, it's still that that grey area at the moment. And t- t- Ten Hag was personable. It was it was a good start. Um, there's there's a lot of there's a hell of a lot of work to do, but. It, it, from from our perspective anyway, where you can gauge what the what the online audience is like and what the readership is like. And the readership for United is always pretty immense, but there are there are troughs as well. If there's a bad defeat or a bad run of form, there is going to be a lack of interest or, or not as much interest. And that was an issue. With Rangnick's uh, tenure, certainly in those last couple of months, but it has certainly picked up, and and also automatically, as soon as the season ends, people think, well, the transfer window has opened. Technically, it hasn't, but it, it pretty much has, and and there's interest as to what United are going to do, what they're what they're trying to do. But Ten Hag has made, as I said, it, not not necessarily a charismatic start, but as I said, it was a personable start on on Monday, and. Uh, I think United fans, by the you know, just by having a look in, really like the cut of his jib as well. So there's there's a a lot more he's got to do to to impress. But it w- it was difficult not to try and you know, fuel, fuel fuel fans with positivity this week just by introducing a new manager and and a manager who was, of course, the fans' favourite as well. He was their pick.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think as. I've seen this happen so many times, you know, watching from my own club and watching every other club covering United. Of course, I think so much weight is placed on, like, in a manager's first press conference. You know, fans always go, "Oh, he's really, he's got everything right there. He knows exactly what's wrong. He's saying all the right things, etc., and so on." And it matters little because Rangnick said all the right things six months ago, and look how that turned out. It, it matters little in the grand scheme of things. But Rich, I do think Ten Hag has made a great first impression. By also, you know. I like Digan did, and Rannick still has a lot of respect from the United fans, despite such a disastrous time in charge on the actual pitch. It's because he said the truth, and he didn't hold. Well, he probably did hold back, but he um, he went as far as he could do without getting booted out earlier than he potentially could have done. And Ten Hag, while not going quite as um, you know two footed at times, I think clearly recognizes the problems that he has on his hands that he's kind of thrown himself headfirst into.
0: Yeah, and like you said there with Raniak, he could talk the talk, but he, he couldn't walk the walk. And he, he wasn't a manager. He wasn't a first-team manager that he, any other team would have gone for. But, you know, United did, and that sums up the issues themselves. Ten Hard needs to find that balance where, you know, he can address these problems. You're always going to maybe say things differently in public than you'd say behind closed doors anyway. I think he knows what goes, well, goes down well with supporters himself. And, yeah, I remember... Sort of reading background stuff into Ten Hag before he came, and lots of the Dutch media were saying that when he arrived at Ajax, they didn't take to him at all. They they thought he was, you know, he just didn't really fit in with the arrogance of, of Ajax and, and what they needed, but he slowly over time sort of warmed to them. And I think, you know, that's an area where he's maybe not going to be too comfortable at first, but. I think that his opening press conference was was really encouraging because, like you said, there was a sense of realism. He's obviously very confident in his own ability. He was asked the, the usual question of, Well, all these other managers have failed before you, so what are you gonna do differently? And he just alluded to, you know, the plan and all the analysis that needs to take place and all this stuff that's gonna go on behind the scenes. You know, he's the poster boy of the new era, but there also has to be hard work from all across the, the club and from his backroom staff as well but he has that sense of realism he knows how big a task it's going to be but yeah you've just got to embrace it after the season United have had for you know for the season to just be over now and like Sam said we're in the sort of no man's land between this season and next season the optimism is just unrivaled we've not had this since last summer really when you know at the start of every season every team's got A chance of dreaming of the Premier League, you know, and yes, there might be teams who are favourites, but United are going to dream because, yes, there's got to be a capitulation from City or Liverpool, but just because they've been brilliant this season doesn't mean that they're going to both be flawless again next season. And United just need to make sure they're the best placed team to capitalise if one of those teams does fall away. And, you know, it's a funny old game, momentum. United, if they start the season well, who knows what could happen. So, Yeah, I think that from his fans' point of view, there's going to be plenty of excitement, but it's encouraging for me that Ten Hag does seem to acknowledge how difficult a task this will be. And again, from his own point of view, he can't come in promising the world because it'll only be used against him if United do indeed sort of have a season of transition and don't actually improve that much straight away.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think it's certainly more productive from everyone's kind of point of view to just kind of put this, you know, shrug this season under the carpet and try and be optimistic. There's no point staying down in the dumps and being moody about everything because that just helps no one, really. But, you know, Samuel, it's been Ten Hag's first week here. Um, Well, he's kind of cut off his um, time at Ajax a bit early, could have been stunning himself in the Caribbean, but he came in um, early doors, got his head into the United job, quickly to kind of make a head start but his first official week after arriving on Monday what has this kind of week entailed what has Ten Hag and his new coaching team kind of been up to to your understanding?
2: Uh, I'm not too sure entirely I've I've, I had a couple of days off so I'm 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 still playing catch up there I mean the the interesting thing one of the interesting things about Monday was that he'd, he'd never been to Old Trafford before it was the first time he'd actually stepped foot in the place and his, his professional career as a player and a coach has spanned something like 33 years, I think. Um, he's, he's even been to, to the Etihad, so it's pretty extraordinary for someone who's who'd worked at Bayern Munich and Ajax never to have ended up at Old Trafford for a game uh, for, for any purpose. I, I remember when Mourinho was into Milan manager and he came over to Manchester to watch United against Chelsea in preparation for um United to Champions League tie with, with Inter Milan next month because he was he was into coach at the time. He was he obviously the, the cameras honed in on him and he was um he was assist he was next to someone who was clearly you know his his opposition scout at the time. And that was that was Andre VS Boas, who then two years down the line is is appointed Chelsea manager and goes on to become Tottenham manager. Um but yeah it was pretty extraordinary that, that Ten Hag hadn't actually been to Old Trafford before, but the, speaking to some of the people at the club, they they got a really good impression from him. Um I mean, the, the, the tour of, of not just the stadium, but actually going to speak to staff uh, in the canteen, going into the offices in the East End is something that has, has gone down very well. There's an element of planning that, that comes with that, but it's also you know, off, off the cuff things, I think, he, but looking at the video that United released, he came across a, a lady in, in in the canteen staff who's worked there so long that she was there when Steve McLaren was there and McLaren seems to, to remember her. I think he points out to her in the video. And, you know, I think from what I was told as well, people who were quite shy and wanted just to stand to one side as he walked down the corridor weren't weren't getting away with it. He would stop people, he would ask them their name, what they did. So he took immense interest in speaking to as many people as possible and shaking as many hands as possible and making as good an impression as possible as well. Um he's he's not holed up in the Lowry. Uh, like previous United managers, Solskjaer and Rangnick also um, started out there before they moved elsewhere. Mourinho, of course, never left the Lowry; He had a two and a half year residency there. But Ten Hag is in, uh, he's, he's staying in Mir at the moment, which, as anyone knows who's been out there, is is—it's quite an isolated area, but a very leafy and pleasant place to um, con- conduct your own analysis out of the... Um, out of the way out of the the media glare. I mean, I remember one time when Mourinho left the Lowry to try and go to a restaurant and it was, it was a bit of a nightmare for him because that him him and his entourage were trying to settle on somewhere to eat. And they were just being followed by photographers, uh, someone selling the big issues, you know, fans just lit. There was one fan I think who just walked up to him and, and, and took a selfie of him without asking. So he found that quite intrusive and, it was, it was it was still surprising that he ended up staying in a hotel, but it wasn't an experience that was particularly pleasant for him then. And I don't think I, I think that probably informed what he said a couple of months down the line when he said it was a, a disaster living in Manchester. But he, he he brought some of that upon himself. Whereas Ten Hag at the moment is well out of the way. You, you have to go on quite a trek to to get to to Mir. It's it's not far off the M6, in fact. So. He's out of the way conducting his analysis. Um, obviously, you know recruitment is the priority at the moment, and United are busy on that front. But it's still I mean, speaking again speaking to people at the club, they've cautioned it is early days. They've said that the window isn't officially open yet, and I know this is context that fans don't want to hear because they've not, they've seen that City have signed. Erling Haaland, Borussia Dortmund have signed four players. Aston Villa have done a couple of deals already. Leeds United have done a deal. Uh, it's, there are no excuses, but clearly the upheaval that's been going on at United in, in recent months has had an impact. There have been drastic changes at just about every significant level at the club, where it's, whether it's hierarchical, managerial, scouting department, communications department, press office. It's, it seems like it's all changed everywhere. And that is bound to have a knock-on effect um, as far as recruitment is concerned, particularly given some of the players that they like and would want. But because of recent events or because of you know, the circumstances, it's it's very difficult to do them. In the case of Calvin Phillips, it, I mean, it's, it's pretty much this year's, so far anyway, it feels like this year's Jack Grealish and that as soon as the club um, stays in the Premier League, it, yeah, the, the chances of that deal happening become slimmer.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, we'll come on to transfers in a minute because it does seem, as you mentioned there, I think Liverpool signed, obviously, Fabio Carvalho as well, so a lot of teams are making deals yeah. even though, even though, as we said, the window isn't officially open, but it does feel slightly already that United may be falling behind, behind a little bit, Rich, but you know, we speak today um, a full month to the day until, you know, Ten Hag begins pre-season at United. He won't have a full squad then. There's um, Nations League, yeah, the, the football just does not stop. There's Nation League fixtures to come at the start of June and I think even in July as well at some point. So, you know, much of the squad, especially kind of the Portuguese contingent, um, you'd expect, will be away with their national side. So it won't be a full team that Ten Hag has to work with straight away. But before then, you know, of four weeks, a month to that day, what, what needs to happen? What do United kind of need to get done before, you know, Ten Hag welcomes his players and starts coaching them for the first time?
0: Yeah, there's plenty of work still to do. Like I said, Dan, there's always going to be the mitigation that when he gets to work and starts training off players, he's not quite going to have the, the team that he wants in mind for the start of the season. We've seen that in the past few pre-seasons anyway. Obviously, there's a tour, the infamous tour, taking place in the 2018 World Cup where Jose Marino just took the kids and it wasn't even the most sort of talented kids he took with him out to the States. And then Solskjaer boasted that the year after that United had done so much extra fitness work than this team that had gone out before. And it was because they've been training the Academy children, you know, all, all season really. And, you know, this, this preseason is going to be, like you said, a little, little different as well, because you've got the international fixtures, you've got the season starting earlier. There's going to be really interesting to see how players are sort of staggered when they come back. It's going to be interesting to see if Ten Hag looks to implement his system straight away that he's going to be using, you know, considering the players being used and it might not actually be playing that often next season. And again, in terms of players who are going to come and leave, as you know as we know, six players due to leave when their contracts expire, the first of July, Juan Mata's already indicated, that he'd be happy to stay. Of course, he'd be happy to stay, but that relies on Ten Hag actually sitting down with him and potentially offering him a contract. Yes, that would be great to have someone like him around, but he's not got to offer anything on the playing side next season. So what is the point? You've got to be ruthless in terms of the fringe players as well. There's so many fringe players that could leave and should leave, but it, again when you're losing so many players for free you've got to determine who's actually worth getting rid of perhaps it just comes down to who can get you the most money in because some of those fringe players are almost worth keeping just to bulk up the numbers because you know they're gonna get so little money and sort of income from their sales anyway You then got to think about the youth players for next season, which ones are actually going to be involved, which ones are going to be with the under-23s, who's going to be loaned out, You know, who does Ten Hag want to cast his eye over, who do you want to give a fair chance to in pre-season? You've got to then sort of analyse who might be available for loan for next season, start offering them out so you can then see which other positions need to be strengthened. And yeah, there's so much for him still to work on. And of course, there's transfers as well. I mean like Samuel said, midfield's got the mitigation to it because Calvin Phillips' lead staying up complicates that. Declan Rice, you know, he's just such a budget-blowing signing this summer that would make no sense really to go for him when you need to get so many players in. And then you've got Frankie de Jong, who, you know, has got interest from elsewhere. You'd have to question him, why would he actually want to join United? How are you going to sell that project to him anyway? There's other positions, you know, United want an attacker. The talk of, you know, getting at least one backup goalkeeper with Lee Grant retiring. In fact, Dean Henson could leave this summer. Centre-back seems maybe the most straightforward in the fact that Timber and Pau Torres are both of interest to in the club and both available this summer. So, you know, there's definitely a chance of getting one of them in. Uh, but again, then if a centre-back comes in, you've got to decide which defenders are surplus to requirement. You've got to get rid of Jones and Bayi. He's not got a future at the club. He's just not really done it yet. I know there's going to be some fans saying well, he's got a bit of potential, but... He's just not shown it and he's had disastrous low moves. So, yeah, I guess Ten Hag just needs to really take that step back and just ruthlessly go for the side and see how many players he can actually afford to let go and then evaluate which ones are the the best to let go, which positions are they really overstocked in and which players can get him the most money to sort of boost that budget as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And while I'm with you, like, United have been so bad, in the last few years, for giving contracts out and keep it's almost like they're scared of letting players leave on a free and then all of a sudden they've got six on the plate this summer. But it's like giving by a new contract last year was ridiculous. Um, I think they've extended Chong's year, like there's no need to extend Chong's probably unless Ten High takes a liking to him and he you know he comes out of nowhere and he's really good. I think we can all agree that's unlikely. Why not just let Chong go and leave and go and play elsewhere? It just seems like they're really adverse to kind of letting players go on a free, but. Matter, I kind of I think I do disagree with you there. Now I know he's not going to play regularly and or that often, but his lack of playing time this past season was to me at least an absolute mystery. And mm-hmm. even games against Brentford, when they're playing against low blocks, he's just that bit of kind of ingenuity that no one else in the midfield at present has. Now obviously Ten Hag might look to bring that in. Um you know, you know, Van der Beek could have it and he might he might kind of come to life a bit um under his old manager. But to me, Samuel, I, I don't know what you think, but to me, I Matter is the one player of the six. I think I would give another year to personally.
2: You're not the only one who said that uh, to me recently. I, I still, I still disagree with you, uh, and and the other person as well, who will remain un- unnamed for for their own sake. But I, I can see, I can see merit in it. I, I'm unfortunately for United because of um, the circumstances last year, where unfortunately his his mother was very unwell and then sadly passed away during the season, he he was unavailable for a large chunk of it. And there were, I think there, there was that horrible period for United where they had about three nil-nils in a row in the run-up to the derby when they all of a sudden somehow won 2 nil and ended a, I think it was a 12-game winning run that City had going in in the Premier League at that point. But there were games like that where you thought they could do with matter here, someone to pick the lock, someone to... Find find a way through, really, because he does have that vision and he does possess that skill set. All I would caution is that, as we discovered against, as United discovered against Brighton, I should say, um, is that against against the majority of opponents and in and, and in the majority of occasions as well, the game is just too intense for him. If you if you're keeping matter, it's almost like he's getting the Europa League quota. He's he's a player that is almost exclusively used for the europa league and as an impact up and i suppose with managers being able to make five changes next season that possibly comes into the thinking because you have got two extra options there if you are chasing a game but it it still would be a bit of a surprise i mean his, his contract was extended um but with with the plus one option after after it had expired, he for a couple of days I think or not not quite forty eight hours he was he was unattached he, he didn't have a club even though he, he was effectively still a United player and I think his his extension was triggered on the same day as, as Lee Grants and you know again the, the, there was there was some dubious decision making going on there more so on, on, with with Lee Grant I, I think he was just. Not not required for any point that he was at United during those four years, but he might have a good book to tell about it. As as Rich has said, I think as, as daft as it sounds, if there is a Lee Grant autobiography on his time at United, that that would probably be quite a, quite an entertaining read. But I still think that they need to they need to look ahead. I mean, Matter was signed by by David Moyes. Um, one of the issues. Amid, amid, among the myriad of issues that United have is that they have a squad comprised of signings made by five or six different managers. And that really needs to end. Uh, you know, there was still, I think Marshall is the only one lurking from, from the Van Gaal era. This is the summer to get rid of him as well, if at all possible. So they need to try and streamline it a bit, bring it a bit more up to date. Matt has been a pretty good player for United, but judging by the scenes at Selhurst Park, he has played for them for the last time. But I, I do agree, of the probably of the six out of contracts, um, he, he's he's the one that there would have been merit in keeping. Although I haven't said that before it came out that Matic's contract was actually not expiring in, in 2023, it was expiring this year. I think he would have been an asset to to keep hold of for, for one more year as well. But he, he took that decision quite early on not to not to have the um the extension exercised.
1: Yeah, I can't argue with any of your points. I I just have clear visions of Matter going to Valencia or somewhere in Spain and just absolutely yeah. killing it and Doing it now with silver, basically. Yeah, I, I can to see it so Adam, clearly. Yeah. And the other things
0: are, though, Dan, on that is
1: that it Mm. is an
0: interesting point that United have got to lose so much experience from the dressing room this Mm -hmm. this summer. I mean, I did a sort of piece on this yesterday saying that they might sort of be, even Lee Grant, I know he's not offering anything on the playing side, but you think Lee Grant, Matic, Cavani, I know that he... Hardly ever plays anyway, but that is a lot of experience and a lot of guidance in in sort of key situations. And then you're losing Pogba and Lingard, who are two of the most popular and, you know, the Mm. two of the jokes of the dressing room. There's a lot of characters leaving United this summer. It's going to be a void for someone to fill as well. So they need, Mm. again, it comes full circle that United need to be signing, not just the right players, but the right characters as well. Yeah.
1: No, that's a great point. I think that would make only Ronaldo and De Gea the players over thirty, if my maths is right. And Varane's touching it at twenty nine, I think.
2: Yeah, I think Fred Fred will be thirty next year as well. Yeah. He's another one. Obviously, obviously, Fernandez has got good character, but he's still yeah. a way off. I think he turns is it twenty eight in September, mm-hmm. so. Again, we come back to, it feels like summer of 2019, where again, at the time it was an issue like, you know, Solskjaer clearly didn't want that many 30-somethings yeah. um, or, or players in their 30th year in the squad, but there is absolute merit in, in having some players there and, you know, he was, he was trying to marginalise Matic and then midway through that season he discovered what a useful player Matic can, can be and he was, he was quite key in the second half of that season.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. I think there's also been sort of a, re- a renaissance in European football of older players in the last couple of years. I mean, oh, yeah. Benzema, Lewandowski, Ronaldo, mm. you know, the, the best strikers are now Modric. the oldest strikers. Do you yeah. I mean? They, yeah. they used to be United fans. I remember during Mourinho's time where anyone sort of over the age of like 29 or whatever was just getting ra- written off and you don't mm. want to be associated with them, but they do have their merits. And when you, when you think about how old you are yourself, you think, well, that is no age, is it, to write mm. someone off? Because you still feel fit as a flea and think you can make it yourself. No, so, I don't. <laughs> okay, maybe not you, but I scored at Old
1: Trafford, so um, yeah, yeah, we,
2: we we hacked it, we hacked it for ninety minutes, pretty
1: much at Old Trafford. No. I, I I've still not scored in my mates' five-a-side games, and I've been playing for eight weeks, so I, I can have no comment on that matter. But you are right; I think that's the kind of general theme in sport in general, like well, in football especially. Thirty isn't no thirty, maybe ten years ago, maybe even not that long ago, was like you know, off to MLS you go, off to Turkey, retirement, or so, you you kind of done, but I mean Salah and Mane above thirty now. De Bruyne is thirty, and they none of them as all the players you mentioned there. There's no signs of them slowing down, and they're still the best players in the world. And know Messi's had a difficult year at Paris Saint Germain, but before that he was one Ballon d'Or. So yeah, there's definitely I think there's definitely um, merit to getting more experienced players in. Um, depending on what signs are available. And, you know, let's let's kind of move on to the... While there's not been much transfer activity just quite yet United, there is some stuff happening, Samuel. Um, namely, at the minute, around the goalkeeping situation, does seem like Dean Henderson's off to Newcastle and um, two backups are being considered in Daniel Backman or Carl Darlow, with Newcastle offering him in kind of a swap deal. Um, is it a bit of a risk to let Henderson go? I know the Hays has had a great season, but as we've kind of discussed... His distribution isn't good. He isn't comfortable on the ball. Like, to me, that's what Ten Hag likes. Ten Hag got in, uh, got a bit of criticism, and it was from an English pundit, so take it with a pinch of salt. But he did get in some, some criticism after the 2-2 game in the Champions League with Benfica for playing an older goalkeeper who was better with the ball at his feet oh, than yeah. um, Onana. And the, the, the goalkeeper made a mistake for the second equaliser, and obviously Ajax eventually went out. So Ten Hag has made it clear he prefers keepers who can play with the ball. And De Gea doesn't do that, so is it a bit of a risk to let Henderson go and then De Gea not being quite
2: see? Who's the pundit who said that? I think
1: it was either Sutton or McManaman. They were both on duty for BT at the time, but it, they both had well, different points.
2: It's 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 whichever one of them it is. It's a stop clock is right twice a day uh, modes because it's it's quite a valid point in that. I think Onana was he's out of contract. I think he's, he looks like he's going to win to Milan and. He didn't play much last year because of a doping ban. I think they signed Stecklenberg at the start of the season. He got injured, and then, as you said, this 38-year-old goalkeeper was elevated to number one when, at the start of the season, it looked like he was he was third choice. With with Henderson, it still seems like that in making a decision, there's a hell of a lot of indecision about United because their preference is for a loan. I think they are still quite worried that they could get burned if they. If they let him go permanently, when De Gea has got at the very most two years left in his contract, again we talk we're talking about ages earlier. De Gea is only thirty-one. Um, he, he could he could go on playing at a high level for the best part of ten more years if, if he really wants to. You've you've seen that with other top goalkeepers um, in over the last decade or this century, where Neuer, Buffon, Casillas. It's it's perfectly possible. Whether that's at United is is another matter altogether. But unfortunately for United, as you say, De Gea has been has become limited in what he can do as a goalkeeper. And in the last four years, he has he has stood still not not literally all the time, but you, you, I, sometimes when people are watching this, they they get the wrong end of the stick, or they're listening to this. But where you look when you look at Allison and Edison, and I think De Gea is a better shot stopper than um, than Edison, and he's as good a shot stopper as Allison. But those those two goalkeepers have got more, have added more strings to their boat. And a little bit like fullbacks um, over the last 10 years, goalkeepers now are not just judged on keeping the ball um, out the back of the net. They're judged on instigating attacks. And it was interesting during the Brighton debacle uh, the other week, that the third goal, I think it was Robert Sanchez pinged a ball that must have travelled about 60 yards to Cucurella. And it led to Pascal Gross scoring. Now, Sanchez is now the number two goalkeeper for Spain behind Unai Simón. Oh, sorry, not Simón, Simón. And David Royer um, is the number three goalkeeper who plays for Brentford. And, and De Gea is obviously out of the picture. I'm not sure if Spain have announced their squad yet. Um, they have, or, he's out. Well, no, yeah, he's out. Well, there you go. You know, so no- nothing has changed on that at all. And I thought when Enrique omitted him in March that if Ten Hag was of the opinion that he wanted to make Henderson his number one next season, that had taken the sting out of the out of the decision because as good as De Gea has been this season, I think a lot of United fans are aware that he's limited and there's, there's almost been a bit of support for, for Henderson to be used by Ten Hag next season because most United fans are on board with Ten Hag being manager and they want him to be able to implement his his style and playing the way he wants to play. And De Gea just doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't really quite fit in there, but it's pretty clear that unless something drastic changes, he's going to be the number one goalkeeper next season. Um, so there's an element of risk already in that, do you try and train De Gea to be a 10-hog goalkeeper if, if, if such a thing exists? It seems a bit premature to say that. The goalkeeping staff... Is is not due to change. United expect Richard Hartis and Craig Morrison, the two coaches, to to remain um, as part of Ten Hag's backroom staff. Does that mean that Ten Hag will bring his own goalkeeping coaching? Still remains to be seen. It's I suppose it is just about possible, but three goalkeeping coaches does seem quite excessive. And with Henderson, look, th- that dynamic has got to change. One of them has to go this summer. It is. It's it's going to be Henderson, let's face it. But where United's preference is for a loan, they can possibly revisit the situation a year down the line where they'll have probably triggered the, the extension of De Gea's contract because, let's face it, they're not going to release him. And then they have to make a decision next year whether they put Henderson in at number one and sell De Gea. The, the ridiculous thing will be, by that point, Henderson will be 26, which okay, it's, it's, not, it's not old for a goalkeeper at all, but it's nowhere near. It's not young either, really. And, and he's been knocking about for a long, long time. And it's just an element of indecision from one summer to the next. There was obviously uh, you know, misfortune with him contracting COVID in pre-season, which scuppered his chances of starting the season for United because he was down to start the season. But you've got to make a, a definitive decision sooner or later. And I can see a scenario quite quickly in Ten Hag's reign where maybe even a year in he'll say look I want a new goalkeeper a little bit like how Guardiola did when it didn't work out with Claudio Bravo and and City were decisive enough to go out there and sign sign Edison from Benfica but it does see there is an element of them kicking the can down the road and not wanting to make an outright decision on it and okay henderson's on a long contract and he's he's on about 110 grand a week so though those are significant stumbling blocks in terms of actually selling him permanently but united have literally never ever said to him or his representatives that you know he's he's free to be sold permanently it's whenever there have been discussions over the possibility of him moving elsewhere it's always been with a loan deal and with with darlow i suppose with darlow and backman they are very obvious backup goalkeepers. They're not going. To, you know, there's an outright number one goalkeeper there, which wasn't the case um, in Saskia's last full season, where the goalkeeping rotation didn't really help De Gea or Henderson. And in targeting someone who's very obvious, very obviously going to be backup, there's there's merit in that. Um, in, in January, Dubravka and Henson was moved as a swap deal. Debravka didn't want to make the move, so that didn't happen. Debravka went on to play all of Newcastle's games, so it's it's obvious for it's it's you know a pretty sound alternative for Newcastle to suggest Darlow instead. And and Darlow is aware of the discussions, and I suppose a, d- a decision will be made at some point in June.
1: Yeah, t- to me, I see like. United have so many other positions that need to strengthen this summer. I think you know they can easily point to you know De Gea's had a great season. He may well end up being the player of the year, although Ronaldo will likely be beat him to it. But he could have won, could win it for record fifth time. It's not a urgent position that needs strengthening, but I do kind of think it is. I think I, I wrote earlier this week that you know De Gea's save percentage this season was about sixty nine. Um, I think it was something along those lines, and it was only zero point five percent worse than Edison's. So you're right, like on- in terms of shot stopping, they're pretty even keel. But the difference was, because because the is kind of so married to his line, he doesn't come up, yeah. doesn't give United's defense the opportunity to push up, to squeeze teams, to press, as we've you know, as we've long discussed. So they either sit deep and invite pressure, or do go forward and are just completely exposed. And then as I, was, I know, United's defense isn't as good as Cities as it is anyway, but they concede so many more shots. So Edison only faced eighty shots um, last season, whereas the Hayer faced one hundred and seventy odd. So. It's just, and that's not all De Gea's fault, but a big part of it is the team can't play high up the pitch because they can't trust De Gea to a, be comfortable on the ball and to be quick off his line. So, and I think the, if Ten Hag's going to play in the in the way that elite clubs play now, Liverpool and City both do the same. It both stems from having really good keepers who, while world class shot stoppers, in Alisson's case at least. The main assets that make him so useful is their on on the ball ability, confidence, and um, kind of perception of coming out off the line. De Gea is an amazing shot stopper, been one of the best in that regard, even though I do think he has a bit of a weakness in his near post for the last like ten years. But he's never had this ability to be what mm. Allison and Edison do. And I think to if Ten Hag thinks he can coach in him into him at thirty years old, then he may he must be very confident in his coaching abilities, Rich, because I don't I don't see that change, and I th- do think. It, it, there's not the expectations on Ten Hag aren't that high anyway for the first season, but I do think the goalkeeper situation might hamper any kind of trophies being won, if that's even a name, which it should always be for United. But maybe not I don't think anyone would be that disappointed as long as United had, kind of have a good campaign and finish top four. But I still think even then the goalkeeper situation is going to be it's going to be an ordeal throughout the year. I reckon if De Gea is going to be coached into what Ten Hag wants to do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, and uh, you know, the reason De Gea makes so many good saves is often because he's given the ball away or they, they've given the possession away so easily from the back, anyway. So, yeah, it's one of those where you know, maybe in an ideal world, you would get rid of De Gea, you maybe, maybe you can get rid of him and Henderson and get someone completely new in, like someone said, like Pep had to do it at City because you just need someone who fits in that mold and has that, that modern approach. But I guess that as much criticism as you throw at De Gea, you've got to throw at the centre backs as well and the defense and the the fact that De Gea is making so many saves shows that there's so much failure elsewhere on the pitch. It stems from having no structure, it stems from not having a solid centre back partnership. It stems from not having a proper defensive midfielder either. And again, it's been said so many times this season, it's also from Forwards who don't don't defend in the opposition's half, you know it starts from that high press and engaging high up the pitch to ensure that your team is not so easy to walk through in the first place. So I do feel that some of the criticism, it's just so easy to blame De Gea for so many of the defensive issues as well, and you know say that he's his you know his lack of ability to sort of clear the ball properly, his, his limited passing range contributes to that. But every every player on the pitch could do better defensively, and that's what Ten Hag's got to. To try and get, and I think that will be the biggest change, really.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's no doubt about that. You know, centre backs another position that's going to have to be probably the the second most important after centre midfield. I'd wager. And you've just written a story about them. Um, Paul Torres. He's a player United have been tracking since last year. They eventually went for Varane instead that summer and didn't bring in another centre back. But he again has emerged as a potential target this year. And United are now kind of running that by Ten Hag. What, what, what do you think the result of that may well be?
0: Yeah. So. Torres was on United's five-man shortlist last, at the start of last year, and like Samuel reported at the time, Varane was always the preference, but there's always a bit of skepticism about whether they'd be able to pull that one off. They did pull it off, so Torres remained the backup. United's interest never sort of went away, but they revived it earlier this year. Torres had a great individual season again with Villarreal, played every second as they got to the Champions League semi-finals. You know they got not in Champions League next season because they had quite a poor La Liga campaign. Ball playing, centre-back, left-footed, so, you know, Louis van Gaal would have loved him, but in terms of what he'd actually bring to the United back line, still may be some question marks about his physicality in the Premier League and the type of defender the United need. Do they actually need someone who's really good with the ball at his feet or do they just need someone who's more of a stopper and can offer a bit more solidity in the back line, someone who's vocal as well? And I guess the other question for United in terms of centre-back is who's going to be the starting centre-back alongside this new signing? Is the new signing coming in to be a a third choice and to supplement Varane and Maguire, or is he coming in to be a partner for either Maguire or Varane himself? So that's another sort of big caveat in, in all of the search. But yeah, Torres is still of interest to United. There's been internal talks, you know, Julian Timber at Ajax is highly thought of by Ten Hag, as is almost every member of the Ajax team. We see a new one linked every single day. I think every Ajax player is linked to United at the moment in time. But yeah, Pau Torres is one to keep an eye on. He's still got a release clause this summer. It's in the region of 60 million euros. Don't expect that to maybe be triggered. I think you could get him for less, but Villarreal in no pressure to sell players because they've had such a good European campaign. And of course they won the Europa League last season as well against United. So they've got great revenues at the moment. They've not really been affected too much by the pandemic in the last few years because they've had that, that big sort of windfall from, from the European prize pot. So yeah, one to keep an eye on, but as as Samuel says, well, midfield still sort of the biggest issue, sort of the priority for United. And then there's just so many decisions at centre back because, like I said, we've got they've got so many fringe players who they still do need to get rid of.
1: Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. I think you know Bailly, uh Jones, you know uh, Twanzebe, as you mentioned, all need to go. And I can see that's why I think maybe Timber might be the more ideal signing because he's only 20. Obviously, had a great season, played pretty much every game for Ajax. But he's versatile, so if a right back isn't signed, which they also need, he can play there. Um, and he wouldn't he come in, in with the same authority exactly. if he has to start every week. Exactly. Car you know,
0: Torres is, is a Spain international, will likely start for them at the World Cup later this year. He's played every second for Villarreal, you know, in the mm-hmm. Champions League. He's not going to want to come to Old Trafford and be fourth choice or maybe third choice. He's going to want to be starting every week. So yeah. if they can actually promise him that and follow through that promise, then yeah, there's a chance of the deal taking place. But like I said, Timber, more versatile, and I think you could get away with him. Being a backup,
1: yeah, absolutely. Um Samuel, as as we touched on earlier, like and as we've mentioned about every podcast we've ever done, I think midfield is the biggest priority. They need a defensive midfielder badly. They probably need a more kind of dynamic passer as well, with Pogba and Lingard and Mata and Matic all off. But as we as we touched on earlier, Calvin Phillips is looking increasingly difficult, and if he doesn't stay at Leeds, with Leeds now having more kind of power to say no, then City appear to be interested with them losing Fernandinho. Franka De Jong's obviously difficult to pull off with lack like, of Champions League football. Even if he wants to leave Barcelona, it seems like every kind of option that United are considering is kind of getting shut the door shut in the face. Who, who are they going to have left to actually go for this year? It's it's looking it's not looking you know that good uh, in the first few weeks.
2: It's it's a good question. Uh, compared to last year, where the outlet certainly seemed a lot clearer as to who they would want, who would come in, it's it's. I mean, the, it's, it's muddied waters, really. Uh, one of the reasons is because of the fact that they're back in the Europa League. Last year, they had top four boxed off before the March internationals, so they were able to proceed with um, discussions for certain targets. With Varane, I think by that point, even March, they've been they've been discussing uh, about a possible deal with, with his camp for the best part of six months with Sancho. There was historic interest there that it wasn't difficult to... Revive and Dortmund were always going to cash in on on Sancho last year as well, but this summer United are are not on the up anymore. Uh, they've they've had a really poor season. They are not as attractive to players either, uh, which is another issue. They don't have the spending power of previous years. There's there's not a budget of. I mean, there's been some chatter of a budget of twenty million pounds. There's the way they see it is that there's no budget at all. It's just a case of spending within their means. Um, they've they've saved about fifty million pounds this year with those six players out of contract going. And the way they look at a budget, if if one does indeed exist, is that the wages go into that. They they don't just see it as oh. This budget exists for transfer fees alone. Uh, that used to be the case; it isn't anymore. The way they operate, and whether it's someone like Declan Rice, who's just a no non-starter this year because he has that contract extension at West Ham that they can add, put add a year onto it. Um, I'd say Rice is already a hundred million pound player. United are not going to be signing a hundred million pound midfielder um, this summer given the, the season they've just had and given how good a player Rice is and West Ham really are in a stronger position to to keep him than uh, they would have been had United finished in the Champions League or, or come close to, to winning the Premier League. Uh, Bellingham was always a non-starter as well. Harry Kane was always a non-starter um, as far as strikers are concerned because Tottenham have got into the Champions League and let's face it even if Tottenham had finished below United you would not have backed United to take Harry Kane off Tottenham because Manchester City didn't do it last year and they were never going to do it either despite you know certain stories that were written Um I think we you know the MEN did a pretty good job on that especially Liam's story uh, which pretty much killed it stone dead and then uh, a couple of weeks later, that that was it, uh, over and done with. When when Kane posted on his on his Twitter page, so it, it is pretty difficult to identify who who is going to come in at United, particularly in, as you say in midfield, it's an area where they do arguably need two new players to go in there. A defensive midfielder is the priority, but if they are to be if they're to become aligned with Ten Hag's style of play, they need someone who can control the midfield, which is why he's he's made a beeline for Frankie De Jong because De Jong's, uh, you know, he's a player in his image, and that's that's the type of play that he is that he mas- that he's a master of. Albeit, I think that if you're De Jong, you would think very. Not even think very hard necessarily about joining United. I, I just think if I was in De Jong's position, I would I would avoid it United at all costs, even with the incentive of playing under Ten Hag. It's just an unstable environment to spend your peak years. Um, maybe if they could agree a loan deal uh, and and United pay the majority of the wages, that that could suit all parties. Barcelona's make some savings, but I think from from what what hearing. In Catalonia, Barcelona's preference would be for a, for a permanent sale there. And if you're Frankie De Jong, why would you be going to Man United, who plan the Europa League next season? And I think there'd be some other clubs who, if you know, if if it becomes apparent that De Jong is definitely leaving permanently, it, it pricks up their ears and they they'd want they'd want him. Uh, I, I could still see him ending up in Manchester, but at City rather than United. And let's face it, City he. He is a Guardiola-type player. You could see him slotting into that City team. City probably need a younger um, controlling midfielder as well, given the ages of of De Bruyne and and Gundogan. And there's talk that Gundogan might even go this summer as well. So they just need someone to, just as a succession plan. And they've been very good at doing that as well. So, as I said, you know, I wish I could offer more clarity on it for for my own um, selfish purposes more than anything. But... Um, unfortunately, it's it is quite it's quite opaque at the moment.
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's a weird. It's definitely going to be like an interesting summer of all the the moving pieces, Rich, and and some of those moving pieces, as we as Samuel wrote um, earlier today, is um there's going to be some looks like there's going to be some movement in the United coaching team. As kind of to be expected, Chris Armas, uh, Ewan Sharp, and Sasha Lenz, who were all brought in by Ralph Ragnick, are all kind of expected to leave with him. No surprises there, but. Mike Phelan looks um, like he could be, um, if not out of the club, um, at least out of the dugout. Do um, you think that's the the right way to go. You know, he's, he's been such a key figure at United for so long. Was it time for something new, perhaps?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And a, a key factor of Ten Hag being a success is that he can get rid of whoever he wants and bring in whoever he wants as well. You know, that's that's what United need. And Mike presence might be missed in the dugout, but I don't think it'll be missed anywhere else from sort of United fans' point of view. Same with the backroom staff, Ralph Ranjic brought in. I mean, Ranjic got this sort of free ride, didn't he, in his perception that, you know, he's only ever going to be the interim manager, so let's not be too harsh on him. He says the right things, but his appointments were dreadful. They've all been absolutely failures, haven't they? I mean, I remember when Chris Armas got the job in the first place, one MLS-based Saw sent me a message saying, is this a practical joke? He thought it was some sort of April Fool's Day thing because he was like, this guy's just been sacked from Toronto. Like, he was a dreadful manager in the MLS. How has he ended up at Manchester United? And I guess that sort of signifies just how far United have fallen. It used to be the sort of peak of everyone's career and it used to be where players and any coach dreamt of, of spending their time. But now it seems like a bit of a free hit and anyone can get a go there if they really want to. So there's got to be, you know, maybe another unveiling of the standards banner in the uh, Stretford end, but with assistant coaches and stuff on them instead, because United have slipped on and off the pitch. And yeah, it's just the clear out that's needed for United. I mean, they've always had people who do really care passionately about the club and they've tried their best. There's no question in the professionalism of anyone who's been at United in the last few years, really, in terms of that department. But they just need fresh ideas and and people who are on the way up. And Ten Hag needs to have a backroom staff that, that he trusts because... He, like most modern managers, is very much a part of a collective. And whenever he gets any individual recognition or praise, he's quick to to praise those who work alongside him and who are such a key part of the, the management team. And, you know, if Ten Hag ends up winning a manager of the month or whatever, you can bet he'll be posing with his backroom staff. He won't just be having the picture by himself. So, yeah, I just think it's the clear out that's needed. And again, you know, the whole point of United... Changing is that they have the freedom to do this, that Ten Hag can get in whoever he wants to. He can get rid of whoever's not part of his plan. So I think it's, yeah, you've got to endorse it because the manager wants it. And ultimately, that's the sort of power that needs to be in place at Old Trafford.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You only need to look at the small army that um, kind of clapped uh, of City's players onto the pitch after, as they were lifting the title to know how important uh, backroom staffs are and how much they're acknowledged by kind of your modern day managers. And, and finally, Samuel, before we kind of wrap this one up, uh, John Murtoff and uh, Richard Arnold were both speaking this week um, on the Fans Forum and whatnot. And I believe you wanted to kind of have a little summarise of what they've had to say.
2: Do I? I think I've you, been. You, you put it on the
1: agenda. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's it's a collaborative effort. It it was it was interest not not interesting as such, but the fact that they are singing from the same hymn sheet is is positive, and I, I get that. Publicly, they they want to be positive about uh, the, the future at United, and that everyone wants to be on the same page. You do hope for United's sake that privately they are being a bit more ruthless and decisive than talking about the massive potential of the squad and i I've, i thought it was a bit of a red flag that ten hag made a point saying this squad finished second last season i mean let's let's get that let's get that straight last season was misleading for for most clubs um i found it quite troubling watching united after the restart in a way that they adapted so well to playing football with no crowds there if, if you're a professional footballer it's not a true gauge of where you're at when you're doing well with no crowds present that's that's not proper football we all know that and united were one of the teams that adapted very well to playing football in in the behind closed doors era to the point that they finished second and finished above Liverpool. But you only had to look at last season, whether it was Sheffield United's relegation, which, okay, it's happened before, team that comes up has a really good first season, second season, they go down. But Bramall Lane was, I mean, Rich was with me. I think it was the most atmospheric ground in the top flight in 2019-20. They really did miss having that support. Liverpool, okay, Anfield, its atmosphere can be quite mythical, but the presence of having those stands full does make a massive difference to them. And they lost to all those teams last season. These teams break in, ending these lean spells of uh, winless decades at Anfield. And suddenly the fans aren't there and they, they go ahead and win there. Last last season was just false for a lot of teams, and Liverpool normality has been restored this season. They're they're back to what they were doing in, in in previous seasons under Jurgen Klopp, and United have have regressed to the point that they've had their worst season in decades. With with supporters present on match days, standards raised as well because the intention was to challenge for the title this season, and a lot of those players have been have been rumbled. It's it's not. Any comfort, to United fans, but unfortunately for them, Bruno Fernandes appears to be a better footballer when supporters aren't present, which isn't great given the investment um, in, in January 2020 and also the fact they've given him a new a new contract quite recently. Of course, he's he's had some brilliant games at United when there have been match goers present, but most of his time at the club, when he has thrived, it's been in behind closed doors games. So I I found it quite Quite worrying that United would actually, you know, publicly talk up finishing second last season. You know, it's, it was it was an anomaly. Uh, I, I really didn't see the sense in doing that. And those quotes have already got a bit of traction online with supporters who are fretting about what the rebuild job is going to be like. But it's almost as if they are bracing supporters for, you know, this this summer. There's there's too there's almost too much for us to do that we can't get it all done. In such a short space of time, and I don't expect United to do so either, but you've got to you've got to have the intention to do it. They signed six players in response to the Moyes season eight years ago. There is no reason why they shouldn't be signing six players ahead of next season. And I'm not expecting them to spend record fees uh, on, on players because that that strategy just hasn't worked, but they've got to be innovative with their scouting with their deal making as well in terms of add-ons and not paying much up front or as much up front as they have done previously which was the case last year and that that's quite prevalent across the board now in in the post pandemic era as well because the money just isn't there uh, for clubs to to spend huge fees up front but you can be innovative with your with your deal making as as Liverpool have been but whether united have the personnel to execute um, such such deal skillfully remains to be seen because there hasn't been the evidence of it in recent years, and they're also going through quite a lot of upheaval um, in, in various departments, which is having a knock-on effect as well. And if you were to get to this first day of next season, out of the current squad, who would you who would you take in terms of a starting eleven? You'd pro- you'd take De Gea. You take Varane despite the season he's had. You take you you take Shaw despite the dreadful season he's had. Um, Fred I think would be a legitimate shout. Sancho Ronaldo. Some would say Fernandez. May, maybe maybe not. But you're still talking about four or five first team ready players to start the season that were signed in the summer. There is not a cat in hell's chance they're going to do that. And I know not everyone will say they need four or five signings to go straight into the first team. But when you analyse it objectively, which you know, I, I I am doing there, I, I do think they need a, a new centre-back to go in um, next to Varane. They do need a full-back. They do need at least one midfielder. They do need at least one forward. So you're talking a minimum four new signings to go straight into the first team. I don't think they've... When was the last time they did that? I'm trying to think. Like in 2016, they signed four players that you expected to start the season, but Mikhatyin didn't start the season. Um, they signed five players in 2020, but as Rich said repeatedly, it was almost as if they were beefing up the squad rather than the first team. It's 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 difficult. Um, I mean, they they got three in in Solskjaer's summer, and they were pretty much those three were first teamers in in that August, but four you're talking four or five and I'm struggling to think the last time they did that
1: well, it certainly remains to be seen, and when we do see it, and if we do see it, you can you can bet that the Manchester Evening News will be there first to bring you all the latest United news over the summer. And um, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. This has been the Manchester is Red podcast. Of course, please uh, like, review, share, subscribe, all that jazz. And of course, you can get us on Twitter at Man United MEN on Facebook um, on the Manchester United Manchester Evening News page, and of course the website Manchester Thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you next week. ta